Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. We're going to talk about last Friday, around 100,000 people turned out to either take part in or rally in support of the school student climate strike. Um, The rallies in Melbourne and across the east coast of Australia were the first of thousands of similar actions taken around the world with about 4 million people striking all up when counted together. And Cam Walker joins us monthly to talk all things environmental policy. He's with us today to reflect on the rally and I suppose discuss what might come next for climate action. And uh, it's great to have you with us cam and i mean they were massive rallies significant by world standards um do you think global leaders were paying attention oh absolutely they were and the more they said oh no it doesn't mean anything the more they were paying attention it's interesting even here in australia a number of federal ministers made a point of saying oh you know it's irrelevant and they should have stayed in school and you know we're doing great stuff anyway um i think the fact that so many of the conservative politicians have had to say that kind of indicates, you know, that the attention they are paying. They, this was the biggest single day of climate protest in history. So if you were there on Friday, you were part, very literally, of history. And I think that our readers do know that, you know, this was a really significant moment in the history of the planet. And so something that I was struck by, Cam, um, I mean, I was comparing the strike on Friday to the, the ones earlier this year in March. And at those strikes, it was, you know, probably 80%, I'd guess, um, students who were kind of in school uniform as part of those strikes. There were a lot broader demographics at the ones on Friday. But it was really encouraging and, and striking, I thought, that it was still very much students and, and young people leading the strikes themselves, getting up and emceeing the event and really making the whole thing happen. How significant is that? Oh, it is incredibly significant. So what's happened is the student strikers, you know, they're, they're, they're determined, they're not going anywhere and they want to build their movement. So after the last round of, of student strikes, they said, well, we need to get bigger. So they went out and they did incredible outreach to unions, to businesses, to faith communities, to First Nations, and they said, we invite you to join us. And, and people certainly did. So we're in this point of, it. you know, it's, it's on the upswing. And I know of many people who weren't able to make it because of work or other commitments who felt really inspired by it. So I think it, it, it shows just how smart these kids are, shows how strategic they are. And the other thing, of course, that goes on the conservative media says, oh, they're being used by the adults. But, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of the student strikers and I'm lucky enough to live in Castlemaine, which is where the, the student strike started in Australia. Uh, you know, and these are really highly motivated, really switched on kids. And I think... It does a real disservice to them and to the broader debate just to say, oh, they're being used by adults and they're, you know, as one Pauline Hanson uh, senator said, oh, do they realise they're marching to international socialism and there's a global agenda, you know, a conspiracy to get them out on the streets. You know, none of that's the case. These are kids that are paying attention. They can see what's going on and they're getting organised and I think it's very inspiring. Yeah, and I think recognising that the, the the people leading the actions is really important and, of course, there's always diverse elements in any big rally and, and um, you know, people can refer to those if they if they like, but the actual significance is that it's, it's student-led and young people-led, I think. But in Victoria, the, the government allowed 
public servants to support the students' rights, companies, including banks, allowed their staff to join. That um, not business as usual slogan seemed to really hit the spot for, for business leaders. And I suppose this is all part of of what you're saying that the students are actually building. Yes, they are. And it's global as well, as we said. So the estimate is 4 million people globally, but that was 6,000 events, 1,000 cities, 185 countries. And I think if you look at our population, you know, per capita, Australia really did itself proud, you know, when you compare our rallies in Melbourne and Sydney compared to even, you know, London and and Brussels and, and, and places like that. But where these strikes have been happening is phenomenal. You know, Istanbul and Islamabad and Cape Town and Bogota and Karachi... Like, this, to my mind, is the first time these climate strikes have really gone global, i.e. right around the world, not just, you know, the, the, the global north. So I think, you know, the detail is it's inspiring that so many sectors got together, such a cross-section. It's inspiring that so many people came out, and it's inspiring that it was really, truly a global event. And, and you alluded to, I guess, um, you know, the way that the strikes have been framed by some politicians and, and I'm sure particular media outlets, um, you know, in terms of the intent of the protests themselves and whether they might be being led by adults and so on. But that's, that misinformation campaign, um, you know, is kind of concerning. I know there was a photo doing the rounds of, um, of rubbish that was allegedly left by protesters at the site of one of the strikes, which was, you know, completely fabricated. There's troll and abuse on social media and so on. I mean, how do you combat that when uh, fake news and, and the spread of fake news has been seen to have real political consequences in, in societies across the world? Yeah, it's just so disappointing. That photo, um, it was taken down because it was clearly a hoax, but it had been shared 35,000 times by the time it was taken down. And then what happens is people get green screen grabs and then post it on so people don't know that the original source uh, you know, was dodgy. Um, there's a mass disinformation campaign going on, and I look at our social media and the, the climate denier trolls are just everywhere. And it's interesting uh, when you look at the, the concept of the troll bot, um, and there's been quite a bit of reporting that there's these pro-climate denier troll bots that have just basically gone through the roof in terms of their postings in the build-up to the UN meeting, which is starting today. So we are in the middle of a really information war and um, it's telling that they're working so hard to water down what is really going on in the world and that's because they feel threatened and they feel that they're losing the debate so you know it's a backhanded compliment that the uh, you know the hoaxes and all that sort of thing are you know it's, it's so proud prevalent at present. It's 9.30 and Cam Walker's with us. We're reflecting on the climate strikers uh, last Friday and the 4 million people that got out globally with 100,000 odd people here in Melbourne rallying um, in, well, really in the lead up to the UN Climate Summit, which is convening later today in New York. And we know the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is in the US. He's not at the summit. Uh, And I understand, Cam, this is because the UN Secretary General wanted leaders to turn up with plans and not speeches and so Australia doesn't yet have a plan I understand beyond 2030 Uh, so I'm not sure whether you see it significant or not that Australia isn't there and I suppose is it fair that Australia isn't there when there are larger polluters going to be speaking at that that UN climate summit? Yeah I think this is actually incredibly significant because these UN you know 
conferences and meetings that have been happening for decades now. Basically, anyone can rock up and say, oh, we're doing all this great stuff, and then they go away and they don't do anything. And Australia is firmly uh, in, in that camp now. It's interesting if you look, I think 63 countries were invited to speak. Uh, the ones that weren't were countries that are really promoting coal, so Japan, South Africa, Australia, and those who um, are being destructive in the process, such as Saudi Arabia, and those that have been really critical of this kind of collaborative approach to climate change. So that includes Brazil, and people will be aware of the fires in the, in the Amazon, and the USA. So we're not in really good company in terms of the ones that have been excluded. We're welcome to attend, and our Foreign Affairs Minister will be there. We're just not um, speaking because we don't have a coherent plan to bring down emissions and our emissions at the federal level keep growing. So I think it's really good that instead of being allowed just to have another talk fest, people are being held to account. Um, the big per uh, gross emitters like China and India are there and it's important we always remember there's per capita emissions and we're amongst the worst along with Saudi Arabia and then there's the gross emitters, so individuals producing less greenhouse gases but many more people in that country and a decision was taken to invite countries like China and India because of the understanding that they are in the process of developing meaningful plans. The proof will come out in the next five days uh, in terms of what they put on the table. But the context to this is the UN has just released a report and it says if we want to avoid runaway climate change, that is keep it below two degrees Celsius warming, we need to increase the national ambition by at least three. So we're looking at some pretty you know, serious action that's going to have to be put on the table in the next five days. Yeah, yeah, that report, Cam, that, that United in Science report, I was just having, having a read of that and some of the reporting on it this morning, and it paints a pretty dire warning if we continue on the current trajectory, uh, you know, heading for between 2.9 degrees and 3.4 degrees, which is, you know, of course, well above the 1.5 or, or 2 degree warming um, that, that we were, you know, hoping to contain it within um, as part of the Paris commitments. I mean, it, it seems like every time a report like this comes out, the situation we're finding ourselves in is just worse and worse. It is. And the sad thing is, of course, it's entirely consistent with earlier reports. So one of the details in there, they were talking about 200 million people being displaced by sea level rise in those low-lying nations like Bangladesh and Tuvalu. You know, I mean, that, that's been known for close to 30 years that this will happen. But it's just every time as, you know, the data builds up and every time as the the the, the the scientific understanding increases, the forecasts become clearer and clearer. So, you know, the people that are paying attention, it's heartbreaking because we knew all this. Uh, but what we need, I think, is this transition whereby communities realise we need to act, businesses realise we need to act, as yet the light bulb hasn't gone over uh, the heads of our federal government and a lot of other federal governments. But yes, that, that report really underscores yet again that we do need plans, we need to really lift our ambition. And the key asks in that were around reducing emissions from fossil fuels, banning new coal-fired power stations, stop promoting um, fossil fuels and setting place deep emission reduction targets. Um, so, you know, very much kind of core business for Australia in terms of how we respond. Well, we wait and see and we'll keep talking to you, Cam, about what will happen, I suppose, leading into what is being dubbed the climate decade, um, which is 2020 um, to 2030, where we need to see the Paris commitments honoured, but also um, countries, well, and and companies um, set targets and long-term strategies for how we're going to achieve what, you know, what really needs to be 
net zero emissions between 2040 and 2050 if we're going to contain warming. So there's um, a lot to happen. But um, thank you for, for joining us for 10 years on this um, here radio show on 3RRR. It's been really great to have your insights for all this time. And uh, we're not ending today. No. <laughs> <laughs> we're just celebrating with a live performance. Um, uh, and so, yeah, thank you, Cam, for, for being part of um, the grapevine for all this time. Yeah, thank you. It's been fantastic fun, and I, I'm a bit scared how fast 10 years can go, but <laughs> I guess if it goes so fast, we must have been having fun. So, yeah. yeah, it's been great. Looking forward to more. Yep, and we'll catch you again in a month's time. Thanks heaps. Thanks, yep. Cam. Going to stay in and around this topic for now to specifically unpack what's a relatively common proposed solution for climate change, and that's a move to nuclear. Associate Professor Tillman Ruff of ICANN Australia, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, has focused a new paper on the twin risks of nuclear weapons and the effects of unchecked climate change and the existential threat they both pose for the future. You might recall ICANN, which started here in Melbourne, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 for its ongoing efforts to establish a treaty-based prohibition on nuclear weapons and it's really great to have Tillman back in the house. Thank you very much. Fantastic to be here. And um, it's a pretty big topic. Um, It's topical. We saw uh, the uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison with the President of the United States in a press conference where Donald Trump bragged about his arsenal of nuclear weapons just over the weekend and um, but at the same time vowed not to use them. Um, but linking nuclear weapons and climate change is something I haven't seen before. And um, I think both topics um, kind of implode somehow in the human brain. They're hard to kind of grapple with. I suppose, how do you, how do you put them together in your, in your immense They <laughs> sure are big and tough. But, and I think all pretty much it, you know, it would be hard to be alive today and not to appreciate that the climate is changing if you can't see it and feel it in your own life, uh, then you're not going outside very much. And, you know, the evidence is just so overwhelming that the climate is changing because of human activities. I think what too few people understand is that the climate can change in two ways. It can get hotter, it can get colder. It's warming at the moment. Worryingly so, accelerating, you know, the impacts we can feel. But the other kind of climate change is getting colder and actually the most acute the most immediate risk to the climate from human activities would be a nuclear war that puts so much soot and smoke into the upper atmosphere from burning cities that it cools darkens and dries the climate underneath and could produce essentially an ice age conditions within a matter of days so abrupt global cooling and that's actually the most immediate risk to the climate. Like, that could happen really quickly. So I think it emphasises the vulnerability of the climate to human activities in more than one way. It highlights the centrality of a stable and hospitable climate for the health and well-being of all of us and all the species that we share the planet with. And it highlights that we have to deal with both these threats, global warming and Um, nuclear weapons, which kind of exacerbate each other in a number of ways Um, at the same time. We don't have a choice. We have to sort both of those so that they don't pose a risk to all of us and our climate. 
And, and there's, of course, some concerns with the kind of um, posturing happening around the, the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Iran and, and what the US's role in a potential conflict might look like. And, of course, there are concerns about the direct loss of human life that might result from a war. But what would it take if there were nuclear weapons used in, in such a conflict or another conflict, for example, between India and Pakistan or, or other nuclear-armed states? How many nuclear bombs would would need to be used for there to be quite disastrous consequences for the planet in terms of cooling? Yeah. So, of course, any nuclear war would have terrible immediate consequences in terms of burns and blast and the radiation effects on on the people nearby and, and directly affected. That would be horrendous on a scale we haven't seen before. But it's the climate impacts that, that I think few people understand is really what would actually cause the biggest impacts. For significant global impacts, there seems to be a sort of a threshold that you need about a million tonnes of smoke in the upper atmosphere. Um, but that could be generated by a surprisingly small number of nuclear weapons. So the work that climate scientists have done to date that's been extensively peer-reviewed and published, accepted by almost all the world's governments, was a large part of the basis for the treaty banning nuclear weapons, the evidence base that that motivated that treaty, was that even 100 Hiroshima-sized bombs, so that's, that's less than half of percent, one half of one percent of the global nuclear arsenal in terms wow. of numbers of weapons, and because the Hiroshima-sized bombs were by today's standards, relatively small tactical weapon and the average size weapon is about 13 times larger, that's less than a tenth of a percent of the total explosive yield of the global arsenal. So if that were targeted on cities, it would put about five or six million tonnes of of soot or smoke into the atmosphere. Of course, it depends which cities are targeted. So bigger, more fuel-dense cities, more concentrated, so particularly cities in China, um, the big cities of North America and and and, um, and Europe, but especially China, would produce larger amounts of smoke than more sparsely populated cities like Australian cities. Um, but you're still talking potentially a hundred relatively small nuclear weapons targeted on cities, being able to more than offset the global warming that we've already seen essentially overnight. So. One or two nuclear weapons wouldn't do it. Ten or twenty on cities probably wouldn't do it, but a hundred even small ones certainly would. Mm. And this way of of thinking and and I suppose the analysis that has been put um, forward in your paper is is pretty alarming to to read through. Like I, I I was saying earlier in the show, I was reading it and trying to lighten it in my own head so that um, I didn't have to feel the enormity of what you're putting forward, Tillman. And I wonder. Um, you know, it's sort of disbelieving that nuclear weapons would be used because we haven't seen it. I mean, you mentioned Hiroshima since 1945. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I suppose, though, it's still possible because there are arsenals all around the world with these weapons. So on one hand, you think that's never going to happen. But on the other hand, it is possible because we've got these stockpile of, of nuclear weapons in many nations. It's entirely possible as long as they exist. And I think pretty much everybody that's been around and managed nuclear weapons assesses today that the risks are as great as they've ever been and probably growing. We're seeing unprecedented levels of investments in new nuclear weapons that we haven't had before. Nuclear-powered cruise missiles was a test of those, was responsible for the accident in northern Russia just a few weeks ago that killed five Russian scientists. Um, We're seeing the disarmament the hard-won 
gains the treaties that have constrained nuclear weapons proliferation the harvest of the Cold War essentially being ripped up one after the other. We're seeing no disarmament talks underway and we're seeing growing risks and threats and brinkmanship in between NATO and Russia, in the Middle East, between India and Pakistan, in Northeast Asia. Um, so the risks are great and, and many military authorities have assessed, in fact, the United States Joint Intelligence Community Assessment, the annual assessment to Congress that it provided in January highlights that an environmentally stressed climate-changing world is one in which armed conflict is more likely, and that makes involvement of a state that has nuclear weapons and potentially use of those weapons more likely. So a climate-stressed world is a more dangerous place for nuclear weapons. Um, there are other emerging risks of cyber warfare, for example, um, which puts potential access to nuclear command and control platforms into the hands not just of governments but potentially non-state actors, so-called terrorist groups, basically. So there's a range of ways in which a climate-stressed world is a more dangerous place. And I think the, the last sort of gasp, I think, for nuclear power, you know, that it's climate-friendly energy source... Um, is, I think, n no longer true, even from a straight economic point of view. I mean, the Lazard, the big international investment house, um, did an assessment last, last year where new nuclear build was, in their assessment, more than twice as expensive as the most expensive renewable option plus storage currently. And... Of course, the, the Achilles heel of nuclear power from a weapons point of view is that you can't separate the potential to make the highly enriched uranium or plutonium that put the nuclear in nuclear weapons from the potential to run nuclear reactors. If you can do one, you can unfortunately do the other. And many of the countries that have nuclear weapons developed them through a program that was initially ostensibly peaceful. Um, so that's... That kind of Trojan horse that nuclear power provides for weapons is unfortunately inseparable, and, and, and that's another way in which yeah, that's right. these things are connected. And you see that, uh, yeah, so there's lots of links you're making between nuclear weapons and, and climate change and, and I suppose some of the... Well, I mean, there is enthusiasm with... Um, well, not enthusiasm is not the right word, but there are politicians and others uh, that see nuclear power as, as being part of the solution, particularly for stability in Australia's energy grid. But, I mean, you're... you're um, dispelling those as well so how do we fit then in australia with all of these debates and um, i mean we do export we have uranium mines here how do we fit currently in the global discussions around nuclear weapons and uh nuclear energy and i suppose and and climate change how do you see us in those debates well at present australia is part of the problem on both counts, I have to say, more than part of the solution. Um, really regretfully and seems to be going more backwards than forwards. We, are, we were the most active opponent of the nuclear dependent states, the states that don't have nuclear weapons but claim protection from another nations, um, in opposing the treaty that bans nuclear weapons. We have said that we won't sign it. We're not actively engaged in any other useful disarmament measures. On the climate front, Australia is you know, internationally one of the worst offenders of, of resisting effective international cooperation to, to get greenhouse gas emissions down uh, because of the 
toxic vested interests and, and corruption of our governance by the fossil fuel lobby. And I think this, you know, it's extraordinary for me that in, in 2019, when the economic case for nuclear power has utterly collapsed, um, and even current renewables are demonstrably half the price of new nuclear build in the most optimistic scenario that we should be having four inquiries around the country, New South Wales, Victoria, and and federally to re-examine this, where even the you know shamefully pro-nuclear Royal Commission in South Australia in 2015 and 16 said there's no case for doing this in Australia, and after the Howard government embraced the Switkovsky report recommendations that there should be 20 nuclear power stations up and down the east coast of Australia in, in 2006, the coalition dropped that policy like a hot potato after they lost the 20, 2007 election, realising that that was an electoral liability and going nowhere. So I think having all these inquiries, having these discussions, it's in part sort of an ideological rant by those who are now in a position to, to rant. Mm. It's in part, I think, a, a distraction from the absence of an effective climate and energy policy um, in this country. But unfortunately, there is this dark underbelly. Um, historically, the reason that Australia wanted nuclear power, the reason why the Gorton government in the late 60s started construction of a nuclear power reactor on Jarvis Bay on Commonwealth land was very explicitly to shorten the time, ease the access to Australia for nuclear weapons if and we decided to go that way. And there are still, there are still those sentiments around. Most recently, former Defence Secretary Hugh White, in a book you know, countenancing the possibility that Australia might seriously need to, to reconsider getting its own nuclear weapons in a way that got, a, I thought, a totally inappropriate amount of airplay for a disgusting suggestion, mm. frankly, offen- an offensive suggestion. Um, and thankfully the government at least quickly and clearly said Australia is a signed-up member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. We are not going that way. But the fact that those conversations keep happening in the think tanks and and the diplomatic circles is of is of serious concern for all of us i think we're speaking with associate professor tillman ruff from the university of melbourne he's also co-founder of the international campaign to abolish um, nuclear weapons um, and he's our guest today talking all about a new paper he has put out on the connection between nuclear weapons and our climate and i think it's it's really interesting to hear about those proposals for nuclear energy in australia or nuclear weapons in australia when the risks of both of those are very well known. I mean, you know, Chernobyl has become almost a form of entertainment and people are going there as tourists, which is quite a bizarre thing to think about. But people also in recent memory would would remember Fukushima and the disastrous consequences of what happens when a nuclear power plant is ruptured. And I imagine in any kind of war scenario that nuclear plants themselves could become likely targets of attacks because of the disastrous consequences on local populations. So why is it, do you think, that people aren't so cognizant of the very real threats of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy when there are very high-profile incidents that have happened in recent memory? I think we have an extraordinary capacity for denial. There are are very powerful vested interests um, that promote both. That that don't want us to think about this. We have a a very controlled and very compliant and shamefully non-critical media in this country with the highest levels of concentration 
in in obviously the democracies um so i think there's there are reasons why why we don't think about this i mean the only reasons now why anybody should be promote is promoting nuclear power is either because of total ignorance or vested interests or they really want to keep the powder dry for weapons um, those are the only real explanations. Um, we can build a renewable f- future that has no serious security risks whatsoever, you know, no dangerous materials that produces essentially no hazards uh, to people that can't be used for any, pretty much any kind of weapon, let alone a, you know, an indiscriminate yeah. Weapon of mass destruction. And the, the tug of war continues, though. And, um, I mean, we're a bit tired on time this morning, Tillman, but I wonder, um, at the moment, we the UN General Assembly will, will meet this week in New York. Uh, we've already spoken earlier this morning about the, the climate summit that is part of that. Um, but will the uh, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which um, your organisation, ICANN, won a Nobel Peace Prize, be there? Um, will we see more signatures on that treaty do you think by the end of this week we will certainly have people in new york this week this is the opening week of the general assembly session so so called leaders week when the largest number of prime ministers and presidents and foreign ministers are strutting their stuff and talking there's a high level meeting on nuclear disarmament on thursday um, the 26th of september which is the un international day for the total elimination of nuclear weapons and also on that day, very happily, is a signing ceremony for the treaty. We've just exceeded the halfway mark. On the 29th of August, Kazakhstan was the 26th country to ratify the treaty. Um, we're expecting... We won't have confirmation probably until late Wednesday, but it's looking really good that we'll have at least uh, four or five and hopefully significantly more ratifications and some new signatures and I'd be pretty confident that by the end of the week we'll be well over 30 and by the end of the year we'll be closer to 40. Uh, This treaty will enter into force when 50 states have ratified it so it's well on the way to that. I'm increasingly confident now that it will enter into force uh, next year rather than the year after and that will change the game, that will change international law. Uh, well, really looking um, to the end of this week to see progress on that. Um, thank you, Tillman, for coming in and speaking with us again. And you dropped in our hands uh, a new report called Choosing Humanity, Why Australia Must Join the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which ICANN has published. We haven't read it, so we're not going to talk about it this morning, but I just wanted to highlight that it is there and that you, um, ICANN is going to continue to lobby uh, countries like Australia to be part of that treaty and uh, yeah interested to see where you get to and um, whether it comes into force this year or next thanks very much for coming in thank you and you might have heard last week that a new inquiry into the family law system has been announced it will be a joint parliamentary inquiry into family law and child support chaired by liberal backbencher and former social services minister Kevin Andrews the deputy chair will be Pauline Hanson This inquiry has been welcomed by some, including people who have experience in the system, but overall the new inquiry has been met with disbelief, especially as it comes hot on the heels of an Australian Law Reform Commission Family Law System Review, which made 60 recommendations, of which none have yet been implemented. Tanya Clark is Senior Policy Advisor with the Women's Legal Service Victoria, which has broad experience of the family law system, and it's great to have you on Triple R, Tanya. 
Oh, thanks for having me, Carlia. And I imagine that the Women's Legal Service Victoria has um, absorbed the, the news of a new inquiry last week. And what what was uh, your response? Yes, um, yeah, we have been absorbing it. When we first heard it last Tuesday, we were actually in Canberra um, continuing our work to lobby for real reform. Um, we initially were quite shocked and, yes, ever since that we've been absorbing it um, and uh, putting it in the context of, I guess, family law reform over the last five years um, and all the inquiries that we've been participating in. Yeah, and so we, we have, of course, had the Australian Law Reform Commission report very recently and also had another inquiry, a House of Reps inquiry, which reported in 2017. Why has another one been announced so soon uh, on the heels of those? Well, that's a very good question, Dylan, um, because as we've been going through those inquiries, and the one you're referring to, the first one, was a detailed parliamentary inquiry into uh, a better family law system to support and protect those affected by family violence. So it specifically uh, dealt with family violence and was chaired by Senator Sarah, uh, Senator, who's now Senator Sarah Henderson. Um, and we had some, you know, quite good recommendations coming out of that inquiry. Um, and then we had another review at the same time that that inquiry was going on, the ALRC review that you referred to. Um, and we went through that uh, and, you know, went through the consultation processes and all the submissions. Um, and we've just come off the back of that. And as you said, there were 60 recommendations and we were, and the government was as well, um, going through all those recommendations to work out which ones, you know, that we would support, which we wouldn't support. And if I could just make a comment on those recommendations too, um, you know, we were uh, looking at them and analysing them and, um, you know, so there's some good and some bad. So it's not that we wanted them all to be um, recommended, uh, accepted, sorry. But, uh, yeah, we need to look at it all. And so we, we're quite surprised that we need another inquiry. Yeah, and, I mean, it is a really fraught, area of of public policy um and i think i mean there's broad recognition as far as i can tell tanya that the system is not working um can you see in any way that this new parliamentary inquiry could could bring some good or or do you think this is really going to delay the necessary um reforms in family in the family law system that that we're we're waiting for Yes, uh, that's that was our, you know, that's been our reflection that obviously it is going to delay. As I said, we were in Canberra and, um, you know, we have a very clear platform for reform and we believe the government, um, with all the evidence they have before it and all the recommendations in the inquiry, that they could take real action now. Um, what is interesting is that it is, it is um, clear, it has clearly been established that you know, a majority of matters going through the uh, family law courts um, involve allegations of family violence. In fact, up to nearly 70% of matters, um, you know, the the courts are dealing with deal with family violence. Um, And so it's the core business of the courts. Uh, So we know that. And so we need reform now that actually addresses the needs of family violence victims going through the system, women and children. Um, And I think that's become clear too with the um, 
you know, the former Chief Justices of the Family Court saying that as well. So, yes, we, we, we do need reform now. And so what, what, I guess, in your view, are some of the most pressing reforms that, that really need to happen um, sort of immediately in order to improve the way that the Family Court and the family law system overall functions more efficiently and, and more effectively? Well, if I could just um, take you um, a step back, uh, Dylan, if that's okay, just in terms of pressing reform today, um, I think that we need to look at the inquiry and if it is going ahead, um, then we need to put in place essential safeguards uh, to protect and support family violence um, uh, victim, victim survivors um, through the inquiry because, you know, if they want to give evidence, um, or they want to go through it. The way it's set up now, especially with uh, Pauline Hanson, you know, as deputy chair and having called family violence uh, victims liars, that we actually need some safeguards. And I noticed the um, the Law Council of Australia have come out this morning saying that, you know, family violence um, training is going to be crucial uh, for the committee members. Um, then, you know, we would argue that we, we would support that, but it needs to go further. And there are other safeguards need to be um, put in place and these safeguards largely reflect um, what we would argue needs to also be in place within the family law system itself and the family courts Um, so that's probably the first thing I'd just say to you there and Mm. then you know we've got other reforms in terms of recognising that the um, you know uh, family violence is a core business of the courts and so a lot of our recommendations around you know protecting and supporting and you know, dealing with the risk of further family violence through the system. And can I ask um, just a follow-up question on that, Tanya? Um, what do you mean by safeguards? Is this for those that will be participating in the inquiry? Is that what is that yes. what you're referring yes. to there? Just to to ensure that the participants are um, are, are somehow protected in in yes. giving evidence to the inquiry. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, the, I guess in terms of our reaction, um, when we thought that um, the inquiry was going ahead, we started to think about, well, what, you know, what would the safeguards be? Um, and we have sent those um, safeguards to the Labor Party um, through um, direct contact with um, uh, Mr Albanese. And, uh, uh, and we believe that the Law Council has started talking about those, but they need to go further. Um, so the, I'll just quickly um, talk about them now. So the first one, obviously, is that each committee member um, for the inquiry undergo training on the effects of trauma and the dynamics of family violence. The other thing is how witnesses are able to give evidence should be according to their wishes, and it could be done anonymously, privately, confidentially, etc. Uh, the other, and also how that um, evidence is given, so it can be done remotely by video or audio technology. The others is what's really important, and it's something that the um, you know needs to happen, as you said, in the family law system itself. They need access to specialist counselling support um, and free legal advice because you know, there can be consequences to disclosing uh, information about family law matters. You could be involved with the Family Law Act. And I think importantly, and based on the experience of the last week, is that we need media protocols around the reporting and um, you know, how that it actually impacts on the lives and the safety of family violence victims in the community. 
Um, uh, Tanya Clark is with us. She's Senior Policy Advisor, Women's Legal Service Victoria. And Tanya, something happened then. (laughs) We can't really get a good voice. We're not really hearing you very clearly. So if you could sort of move one way or the other, that would be really great so we can keep speaking with you. (laughs) And, I mean, you, as you mentioned, were having conversations with um, current sitting MPs uh, very recently, you know, just before this new inquiry was announced. And, And I guess I'm interested in the relationship you have with those in parliament i mean when you come to them with proposals such as the ones you're you're suggesting now um you know to being embedded in this inquiry to ensure those safeguards are implemented and and so on are people sitting mps really open to these sorts of of reforms because it sounds like the inquiry came and and a lot of people were quite blindsided by them but you're still having these these regular meetings with with those in positions of power well, this is where we feel really perplexed because when we, you know, lobby for reform and even though we haven't had any action yet and we feel confident that if we keep on pushing and we will for, um, you know, more immediate reforms to ensure that the it's recognised that the uh, family law system needs to specialise in family violence and for the, you know, support of, uh, to support victims, um, that, you know, we, we do get a lot of... Um, positive feedback and we have a good relationship with government and we have a good relationship with the attorney general's department um and we were as i said we were in canberra just continuing that conversation um we understood that the uh you know the government was looking at the recommendations from what's known as the spla report that inquiry that senator henderson chaired and also the alrc report we were all gathering and we were expecting the government to um respond to it all so, um, yeah, we will, you know, continue that. And I guess a bit about being perplexed is, you know, we have a national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. Um, it's just been endorsed by the government. Uh, it goes from 2000, this year to 2022. It was endorsed by the Council of Australian Governments. And, you know, we've, had, we've, we've been moving forward with the language and the understanding of family violence and the decision by the Prime Minister in setting up this inquiry, but not only that, but with Deputy, with Senator Hanson as a Deputy Chair, um, and, you know, uh, we all know that um, Senator Hanson has been speaking to the men's rights activists um, and the rhetoric, which we now know is, you know, false, um, which has been proven by the government's own research, we, we, we feel like it's a real backward step and we're not, we need to, yeah, work, work out what's going on. And I suppose, I mean, some commentators, um, political commentators are saying, and you mentioned men's rights groups there, that it may raise expectations from from some of those groups that the system will substantially change in their favour. I mean, is this something that you're also thinking or really the the committee itself and the parliamentary process is unlikely to find in in that direction? Well, the way it's going at the moment, without those safeguards and, you know, um, with the power that the Prime Minister has given to One Nation through this inquiry, we think it's very damaging and we're deeply concerned about it in terms of where we're going with, um, you know, family violence generally. Um, But also, yeah, this inquiry and how it's going to take place over the next year. And I know one particular reform you've been advocating was for early determination of family violence in cases before the family law courts. And I wonder if you can sort of briefly just explain what exactly it is that you want to see in that regard and whether that will be substantially delayed now that this inquiry has has a while to play out. 
Okay, yes. So we've been arguing, um, and we're through the Australian Law Reform Commission process as well, so it's in our submissions, um, and we were starting to... We've been out in the family violence sector talking about it. We're getting a lot of um, support for it. And so we were starting to, yeah, go to Canberra and talk about it. The Attorney-General's Department's very aware of it. But basically what we're trying to address is the fact that family violence allegations um, are not always dealt with um, by the court early enough and it's not always factored into decision-making. Uh, women who are experiencing family violence going through the family law system, um, the, you know, the, the circumstances are not always taken into account. So what we were trying to do is to say, well, OK, as soon as a matter is um, you know, lodged at the family courts, then the responsibility turns on the court to um, determine the allegations of family violence. Uh, we have some general recommendations. We invite the government to look into it and the courts on how they could do this. Um, but one of the suggestions we have are early fact-finding hearings. So it's all tested up front um, so that as women and children travel through the system, those allegations, um, you know, all the decisions that are taken into account in relation to parenting and property um, have that as the basis. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us this morning, Tanya. Um, and, uh, yeah, it seems like there's a, there's a while for this to play out. So um, uh, thank you for joining us on Triple R today. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.